Before we worship the Lord uh, by the proclamation of his word, would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come before you now. Come before you now, Lord, with hearts desiring to be fed. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would feed us with the living word. That the truths that we see this morning in the inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, necessary word of God would satisfy us down to the very core of our being. And that as you do so, it would more and more give us a taste for heavenly things and remove our taste for the things of the world. Open our eyes to see the glory that's contained here for you, God. Unite us as a, as a, as a church body to fear you. Satisfy us with your love and your grace. Lead us into truth. May we walk out of here more heavenly minded if we are to be of any earthly good. Father, we, we are looking at what it means for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That's just another way of saying we want you and the fullness of you to dwell richly in us. So dwell in us richly, God. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do these things. I ask now that the words of my mouth would be pleasing in your sight. And that, Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can. That is, shape us into the image of Christ. And for those who do not have a part with Christ, take dead hearts and give them new hearts of life. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, if you take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Colossians chapter 3. We are... Looking at the second part of Colossians 3, verse 16. Last week, we looked at the first part. <clears throat> Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And we are going to continue through the rest of verse 16. As you're turning there, uh, let me ask this question. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to be a part of the early church? Would it have been like maybe to sit at, you know, First Baptist of Galilee and what that would have been like on a Sunday morning? <laughs> What it would have been like to be at church and the Apostle Paul comes in because he's on one of his missionary journeys and he's the itinerant preacher maybe for that three or four weeks and, and you sit under Paul's teaching. Or you live in Ephesus and Timothy, who was discipled by Paul, is your pastor and, and you are there worshiping with the early church. What would those services have been like? How much would... The services here in America mirror those. Sure, things would be different, but would, would maybe the, the general framework of our services be the same? Hopefully this morning, as we work through verse 16, we'll be able to answer that question, at least in part, what it would have been like and what it should be like today. Last week, we looked at we try to go in depth to understand really what does it mean for what is the word of Christ and what does it mean for it to dwell richly within us as individuals and as a church. 
And this week, as we unpack the rest of verse 16, we're going to see that when the word of Christ dwells richly, there's a certain way that that should shape the worship of God. And as we look at verse 16, it's really important to understand that these verse, this verse was actually not written to an individual, but to a church body. And so what we're going to see this morning is the effects that the word of Christ has when it dwells richly in a church. And what we will see is that there are three main focuses it should be producing in a church. Instruction, correction, and singing. Every time the bride of Christ, the local church gathers, those three parts must be present. Teaching, correction, and singing. The big idea that I'm wanting us to see here is that the word of Christ must determine how we worship. We must be regulated by the scriptures. God has never asked us to bring our creativity to church. He's asked us to bring our obedience to church. And so the word of Christ must determine how we worship Christ. So let me read verse 16 for us and then we will we'll jump in because <clears throat> there is a lot here. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. With all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Our first part, our first point this morning is that the word of Christ must instruct and correct. The word of Christ teaches, church. We, we saw that last week. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we did go pretty deep last week into that. But we have to understand when it says here, when the apostle Paul writes with all wisdom teaching, part of gathering as a local church where the word of Christ dwells richly is to be instructed in the things of God. We don't need to be instructed in what is happening in culture. We don't need to be instructed on how to be better neighbors, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better employee. We need to be instructed in the things of God because we were, when we are instructed in the things of God, God will then shape us in those areas. But it is a very dangerous thing to seek to be instructed in those secondary things and not in the primary thing, which is the things of God. Notice he says here with all wisdom teaching. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, we have saw, we saw early on, it says, For this reason, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and asked that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul is continuing to pick up on this. The prayer that he has for them is what should also be defining them as a church. They are to be a church marked by the instruction in the word of God, but instruction of the word of God with wisdom. And this can only come by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you ever realized and thought about the fact 
that the only way in which any of us can ever properly understand the word of God, be shaped by the word of God and apply it in our lives, is if we are giving ourselves over to the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter what your IQ levels are. It doesn't matter if you went to Ivy League schools. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you will not be able to understand the things of God. You will not be able to properly receive the instruction of the word of God. Now, I want to recap our definition of wisdom that when we were in chapter one, we established. We said wisdom is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to make the most God-honoring decision in any given situation. Wisdom is the Holy Spirit-empowered ability to make the most God-honoring decision in any given situation. I hope you see that within that framework, that definition, and understanding here the word of Christ dwelling richly, what the Holy Spirit does is take the word and apply it to our hearts. So that is how we make decisions. So often I hear people, I don't know. I wish the Holy Spirit would just tell me what to do. Have you opened your Bible? Have you read the scriptures? Have you searched out God's revealed will and asked the Holy Spirit to give you insight, discernment, and instruction? Or are you just waiting for a feeling? The Holy Spirit works with the Holy Word to create holy people. And so we need the Holy Spirit. We need the word of Christ in this process of being taught. But here's an amazing thing. He says here, right, with all wisdom teaching. In the word of Christ, when we are being taught faithfully the word of Christ and we are submitting to the word of Christ, we receive the very wisdom of Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. By our faith with Christ, he becomes our very wisdom. That's an amazing thing. And I just want to say, as I'm up here thinking about this, I hope all of us are being stretched and strengthened and, and convicted and challenged by, the, by God to understand that in and through this, what I haven't mentioned is how we must depend on prayer through it. We need to make it a habit that when we open the word of God, asking for the Holy Spirit to instruct us, when we come to church and we sit under the preaching of the word, when we're listening to sermons online, that we need to be praying, Holy Spirit, help me understand this as I ought to. Help me understand this in a way that takes hold of my heart and shapes me into the image of Jesus. I don't simply want a mental exercise. So Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as a church here. And that should be marked by teaching with wisdom, with all wisdom teaching. 
I feel like every week we get, we gather, we, I, I read first Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. <laughs> right. But I said early on that we were going to be an annoyingly biblical church. So in second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17, again, we see here why we must receive instruction with wisdom from the word of God. All scripture is God breathed. It comes, do you really, God gives us his very words. And when he gives us his words, what does it say it produces? It is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Sadly, this is a controversial statement, but it's a true one. The word of God is all you need in order to live a life pleasing to God. Those other resources are great, but they're not necessary. You don't need an amazing library. You have the word of God. And so that is all you need. And so church, let us be the type of people that when we gather, part of that gathering is receiving teaching with wisdom. Now that part, most of us can say amen to. But Paul goes on, it isn't just wisdom teaching by which we receive the word. He says then, and admonishing one another. Now, that's not a word we hear very often, admonishing, admonishment. Probably because most people don't like it because it makes them feel uncomfortable. So what is admonishment exactly? The word itself, it means, it means to caution, to reprove, to warn, to correct. When we talk about admonishment in a church, it is to, in love, provide very serious instruction and warning. And your the focus is pleading with someone to avoid or turn away from sin. So often people say, I just want to be encouraged. Depending how you define that word, most of us use that word just when you want to make you want somebody just to put some wind in your sails and make you feel better. The church, in my, in my opinion, church, what we need of is not encouragement. We need more admonishment because so many of us flirt with sin, engage in sin. We need to be warned seriously against sin. I don't need somebody to make me feel good. I need somebody to help me be holy. And so we need admonishment. Admonishment flows from the heart, though. Because the only way we can truly admonish one another is if our hearts have concern for one another. If you're burdened for one another. If you genuinely do not want to see a brother or sister running straight into sin. Admonishment's costly because you have to confront you have to toil. You have to labor with people. Encouragement can be easy. I'll give you an encouraging word. 
And admonishment means I have to get into, into the mire sometimes with you and plead with you, that God, and plead with God, more importantly, that he would open your eyes, that he would open my eyes. We saw this word admonishment previously in this letter. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, Paul said, Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Here we see those two words again. We see three words, teaching, wisdom, admonishment. What Paul was burdened with as this apostle who was traveling and establishing churches, he now says, my burden should be the burden of all Christians and churches. All of you should be burdened with wanting to teach with wisdom and admonish one another. Why? Because of what he said in verse 28. That is how we grow into spiritual maturity. It's not just data transfer. So many churches, and I think this is what marks a difference between preaching and teaching, that distinction. If there, if there could be one that's often stated. We're not, when we gather on Sunday and we ask God to speak to us from his word, we're not asking simply for him to inform. We're asking for him to transform. Transformation happens through admonishment. If you are not being confronted, warned against your sin, corrected in your view of life and in the actions that you pursue, then you're not really receiving the word of God as you ought. And that could be a fault of the listener or the communicator. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. I find it striking the word admonishment is only, if you look at Paul's letters, it's only used seven times in Paul's epistles, and it's used twice in the words of Col- in, in, the, in the book of Colossians. With these false teachers circulating around Colossae, trying to get them to believe these false teaching and engage in these false practices, Paul is saying, you guys need to be warning one another. But notice that warning, that admonishment is flowing from the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. We cannot properly admonish if the word of Christ does not dwell richly within us. So why do we need admonishment? Because all of us are tempted to sin and engage in sin. All of us are blind to so much sin in our own lives. And so the most, why do we need admonishment? Because it's an act of love. I need brothers and sisters. You need brothers and sisters to come alongside and say, hold on, pump the brakes. Look at this. This is out of step with the word of Christ. You're headed in a dangerous direction. We need admonishment because we all need to be maturing as disciples. And we can't do that on our own. Now, let me say what admonishment is not. Admonishment is not beating someone down with a hard word. And with that, let me preface that. 
just because it feels like a hard word doesn't, just because it feels like someone's beating you down with a hard word doesn't necessarily mean it is. So you always have to examine your own heart because accountability and admonishment can often feel like judgment when you don't want to actually see your own sin. But that said, admonishment is not simply beating someone down with hard words. Admonishment means you have to guard against the, I'm just saying it how it is attitude. Admonishment isn't, well, I really need to make that person feel horrible about their sin. Admonishment doesn't mean you're hammering everyone's a nail. Admonishment at its heart is focused on helping others grow in righteousness and avoid sin. Admonishment seeks to strengthen and aid your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That means admonishment doesn't always have to come with a hard word, but it does always have to come with the true word. That 1 Thessalonians 5.14 reminds us of that. Now, teaching and admonishing is the fruit of the word of Christ dwelling richly. The more richly the word dwells in us, the more we will find ourselves both engaging in teaching one another and receiving teaching from one another. The more we will engage in being admonished and giving admonishment. And despite popular belief, this is actually how true biblical community is formed. You don't need true biblical community doesn't come about by fun get togethers and pizza parties. True biblical community comes when we all submit ourselves under the word of Christ, receive teaching, receive admonishment, grow in our love and devotion to Christ and one another. Those other things aren't bad and we do those things. Those are fun, but that is not what produces community. Community is birthed out of being taught the word of God and being admonished in the word of God. Listen to what it, it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more, as you see the day drawing near, we should be mutually ministering to one another. Or how the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. But I myself am also convinced about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness having been filled with all knowledge and being able to admonish one another. That's really hard in a culture like today that says you're being judgmental. You're not being accepting. You're not being loving. Admonishment is at total opposite ends with the prevailing culture in our nation and in most churches. Admonishment isn't how you grow churches, according to many experts. But I want you to hear me very clearly. 
to not admonish a brother and sister with the word of Christ is to hate them. It's to hate them. Don't tell me you love me. You see me in sin or heading towards sin and you say nothing. You hate me. And so we must be engaged in this. We must be ready to teach and admonish. And guess what? That's going to make enemies. That's going to put you at ends of the culture. People are going to think you're a mean person because it's about being nice these days. It's not something to easily practice because it's costly. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, Listen how it talks about Paul, chapter 20, verse 31. Therefore, be watchful, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. It takes an emotional toll because you can't really admonish somebody you don't care about. So maybe a question for us to even ask is, do I even care about the people in my life enough to admonish them? Before even asking, do I have the courage? Do I have the compassion? Or am I just focused on me in my immediate circle? Paul spent three years admonishing with tears. How many of us are willing to even spend three minutes? On the flip side, though, are you willing to receive admonishment? Some of us are like, yeah, I can, I have no problem pointing somebody else's fault. But are you willing to receive that correction, that reproof, that warning, that admonishment? Remember, admonishment is a grace of God. True biblical admonishment is an expression of love. If you have a brothers or sisters in your life that are willing to come before you, and imperfectly warn you against the sin in your life, then maybe we should spend more time thanking God for that than being angry at that individual. We're imperfect people. We're sinful people. We struggle with sin to the day we die, which means, guess what? Nobody's going to admonish you exactly the way you want to be admonished. It's just not going to happen. First of all, because admonishment initially, nobody really welcomes it. Like, yes, please tell me everything I'm doing wrong. Nobody's like that. And so we have to humble ourselves and even ask, is there anything this brother or sister is saying, this admonishment that's coming from a heart of concern, compassion, and love? Listen to how the book of Proverbs speaks to this very much. The book of Proverbs couches it within the, within the language of of discipline and correction, but let's just read a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter nine, verse eight. Do not reprove a scoffer lest he hates you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. So are you the scoffer or the wise man when that reproof comes, that admonishment comes? 
A wise man, it says here, will, be, will love you when you admonish them. So we need to ask ourselves, are we growing in wisdom, right? Wisdom teaching with all admonishment. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 1. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Do you see that it is a characteristic of wisdom to accept true biblical admonishment? Or Proverbs chapter 17, verse 10. A rebuke goes deeper into one who understands than a hundred blows into a fool. And that's picked up, that, that very proverb can be picked up in Psalm 141, verse 5. Let the righteous smite me in loving kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Let not my head refuse it. Lastly, Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. <laughs> I think all of us would love, aspire to, to be growing in true wisdom. One of the real easy ways to ask ourselves if we're growing in wisdom is are we willing to accept admonishment and not just accept it, but then apply it. So this is the first part that Paul says here should be marking the church as they gather together, teaching with wisdom, correcting one another, which is admonishment. And then he goes on to say here, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with gratefulness in your hearts to God. So let me ask a question. When you woke up this morning and you were getting ready for church, what did you have in mind as your reason for being here? What did you have in mind for being here this morning? Maybe it's a sermon that's going to help you live a little more righteously. Or it's an opportunity to gather with people you truly love, care for. Or option three, to behold and make much of the triune God in the person of Christ. Number three is the right answer because the goal of all worship is to behold God. And one of the ways we express this and do this and are brought into this is through song. That's what Paul's saying here. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Now, Psalms, when he says here, he's referring to the book of Psalms. It was the common practice back then in many, in many churches still today to actually sing Psalms. To put them to music and to sing them where God's words back to him. I often say every Bible has a hymnal located right in the middle of it. I'm actually really excited because from what I heard, um, the people who perch, uh, who make our current hymnals, hymns of grace are working on a Psalter, right? And so when that releases, maybe we'll try to infuse those at some point. Um, I know we're still working on getting our voices ready to regular hymns, but I, I'm, I, I think it'd be great one day to sing Psalm 23 to music and sing God's words right back to him. Um, I will sing a little quieter. But that's what they, they would sing the Psalms. And then it says hymns. Now here's, this is really interesting because when it says hymns, 
we tend to think things like a mighty fortress is our God, but that's not obviously what, you know, Paul would be singing, but located within God's holy word are hymns already. There's hymns in your Bible. In Exodus chapter 15, there's an Old Testament where you can consider a hymn, the song of Moses. Turn there. And they would sing this. Listen, there's a couple verses. I will sing to Yahweh, for he is highly exalted. Verses 1 through 18. The horse and the rider he has hurled into the sea. Yah is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army has cast into the sea. And the choices of his officers are sunk in the Red Sea. And it goes on recounting what God did in delivering Israel from Egypt. Hannah lifts up a song to him, to the Lord. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, <clears throat> these, so the, the hymns in the Old Testament were often focused on recounting God's faithfulness and his acts of deliverance. And there's many others. In the New Testament, we have hymns. <clears throat> Not hymns the way we typically think of them, they are hymns, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This was be, is considered a common hymn that would have been sung. Let me read them, Philippians 2, 5, 11. Have this way of thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. They would sing this. In the book of Colossians, we have a hymn. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross and through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And there's many more, but they would sing these truths in the, the hymns of the New Testament were almost exclusively focused on who the Lord Jesus Christ was as the promised Messiah in his accomplished work through the gospel. Imagine gathering weekly and you are in Colossae and you are singing that. The supremacy, the excellency of Christ over and over. Beautiful truths put to music. And he says then spiritual songs and spiritual songs would often be focused on testimony of the Lord's salvation in your life. We need to remember as we think through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs 
the early church did not have printed Bibles. And so it was an oral tradition. And so singing was the main way that the teaching and the admonishing could happen because it was a way to be able to remember it and carry it with you. We homeschool our son. He learns these different songs with different jingles about nouns and verbs and prepositions, and he remembers them. Our oldest daughter did that. She's in college now. If she gets stuck, she can still recall the jingle. Because there's something about singing that keeps truth just planted deeply in our heart. In the early church, not having the printed word would sing, would orally continue to communicate these teachings. And they would carry with them. Notice, though, all three of these terms, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, clearly show that we are, what we sing flows from what we believe. What we sing flows from what we believe. It's how God designed truth to be. Truth is to be sung. And so I got to take a moment here. And we're going to spend a few moments, and I need to give a warning to all of us as a church. Because perhaps there is no way that the church is being more perverted in so many ways than through false worship of song. You probably have heard of Hillsong, Elevation, Bethel, Jesus culture, these different groups. I will die physically before we ever sing one of those songs from them in our church because they come from false teachers and they contain false or at times very empty, shallow worship of lyrics. Elevation, you may have heard of them. They have a band, they sing song. Many churches, almost, almost all churches in the area sing elevation songs. It's pastored by a guy named Stephen Furtick who believes in the heresy of modalism, which is a denial of the Trinity. He himself denies the Trinity. He preaches a prosperity gospel. And he has made at times statements to say that we become mini gods. Why would we even utter the name elevation in our churches when somebody may stumble upon the teachings of Stephen Furtick then? Or Hillsong. Right? Everybody loves Hillsong. A church plagued with sexual abuse scandals. One just came out this week about the main guy who started it, Brian Houston. Rampant sexual infidelity among their pastoral staff. Prosperity gospel, for sure. Very soft, loose positions on gay marriage, female pastors. There's nothing biblical about Hillsong Church. Or Bethel, pastored by Bill Johnson, who taught that he, Bill Johnson taught that Jesus had to go to hell and be tortured for three days before being born again. People of church have been accused of something called grave soaking, where they will lay on like the grave of, I don't know, C.S. Lewis is one. And by laying on his grave, you are somehow sucking up some of his anointing. Okay? And the angel, the gold, you'll see videos where gold is kind of falling from the skies. And they say, that's gold dust from heaven. No, you got that at Hobby Lobby and put it in the vent. <laughs> or there's angel feathers. No, you got that at Hobby Lobby. Also, it's craft project, what you're doing. <laughs> So we will never, ever, ever 
sinner condemned. He's speaking to us in heaven. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> the phone. The, <laughs> You're forgiven. <laughs> so these these are just examples. Issues. These churches have doctrinal issues. These pastors are unqualified. They're wolves. And singing their songs with mean that to some extent we endorse those teachings. We promote their music. We lead people there. We, we, we support them financially. It's an issue. To sing songs from any of those is to deliberately compromise on truth. I don't care how catchy the music is. If you don't like the music, that's okay. It wasn't for you. It was for the Lord. We will not compromise the truth of God's word for a catchy song. But it's not just the where it comes from. The content of a lot of this music is, is, is ridiculous. Some of it is doctrinally sound, but most of it is very shallow. So there is a, I, I want to read some lyrics from one song, a prime example that I've heard sung in so many churches. I've heard it at youth rallies, youth conferences. It's a song called One Thing Remains by Jesus Culture. You may remember, you may, it may become more familiar as we read through these lyrics. Here we go. Higher than the mountains that I face, stronger than the power of the grave, constant through trial and the change, one thing remains. Yes, one thing remains. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. In case you didn't hear it, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Because on and on and on and on it goes before it overwhelms and satisfies my soul. And I never, ever, ever have to be afraid. One thing remains. Yes, one thing remains. Seeing it, your love. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. This is just how the song keeps going. Oh, Lord. One reference. There we go. In death, in life, I'm confident and covered by the power of your great love. My debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Sing it. Your love never fails and never gives up. And it just goes on. And that's how it ends. So <clears throat> it's a long song, just repeating that same repetitiveness. You know what that song didn't have? It had nothing about the character and nature of God. It didn't, mem it didn't mention God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Trinity. It just gave some lip service to debt is paid, power of the grave. But who are we talking about? What God are we talking about? We could sing that. A Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Muslim could technically sing that song. Who are we talking about? And did you notice the one word that was most repeated in that song? Me. Me. It was me-centered worship. This is why what we sing matters so much. The focus in so much of what is happening in most churches is on us rather than on God. It's about what God has done for you. 
It's about how much God loves you. It's about how God can't live without you. This song called Reckless Love. God's reckless love for you. And so little of what we sing is about who God is apart from us. So little about worshiping God for who he is and what he's done. For his glory. So sometimes people ask, why are we singing from hymnals? Because it's the most biblical thing we got right now. Now, I'm so thankful there is modern music being made. The Gettys, uh, City of Light, Sovereign Grace that puts out contemporary good, robust stuff. So don't hear that I'm saying that unless somebody dead wrote it, we can't listen to it. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that we have to guard, guard how we sing. And the reason we sing is because God commanded it. Three, Colossians 3.16 says it here. Admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It is a command. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 echo this very same thing. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. We are commanded to be a singing people, a truth-singing people. And we see that in verse 16 here, the teaching and admonishing is happening through the songs, through the singing, which means that our singing, when we stand up, when we sing this morning, our first two hymns, and we'll sing our closing one today, that is part of your spiritual formation process. Singing is not the warm-up for the sermon. In and through our corporate singing, we are spiritually being formed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and having the word of Christ dwell in us richly. I've heard stories of People, as they get older and, and dementia begins to happen, but you know what they remember? They can sit in their beds, play in their beds. They can recite scripture they've memorized, and they can recite hymns they sang. And the glorious truths of who God is comforts them in those moments. I yet have heard of anybody with dementia close to death singing, and on and on and on his lovely. No, it's not what anybody's singing. They're singing Amazing Grace. They're singing A Mighty Fortress is Our God a bulwark never failing. They're singing, great is thy faithfulness. Why? Because there's truth in that. There's power in that. When we sing, and I hear you singing, and you hear me singing, we're reminding one another of God's works, God's character, and God's grace. We're reminding each other of the truths of scripture. And we're mutually discipling one another. Little people in the service hearing these songs half spaced out, but you know what? What they're hearing at seven, at 17, they have memorized. And singing is one of the ways that you and I wage war against Satan and sin. I don't know if you've thought about this, but singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is an act of warfare. In Colossians 3, at the beginning, we saw that we are to be putting sin to death. And a few verses later, at the end of this section, we hear singing. What is the connection between putting off the old man, putting on the new man? The old man being dead, the new man being raised to life, and now we hear singing. Because singing declares war against falsehood. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read that 
how they should be singing to one another. And then right from there, you go into Ephesians 6 and putting on the spiritual armor. And this is not uncommon. We've heard, we've seen that one of the ways in historically people go to battle and they go singing in the troops go singing into the, into the, onto the battlefield, right? It provides strength. It reminds them who and what they're fighting for. It grounds them. And so when we sing, we are singing. When we sing, we are engaging in the fight of faith. And then one of the beautiful things is that singing gives affections, feeling to truth. Listen to Psalm 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. Singing is a way of taking the truth, putting it in your heart, and starting a fire of affection. Then he ends here in verse 16, with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Because there is, that's how we sing. There is no true worship without gratefulness. And notice it says this gratefulness flows from the heart. With gratefulness in your hearts to God. The heart, that inner seat of your affections, the truest part of you, of, of who you are. The place where love of God resides. From that place, sing with gratefulness. It's not simply words leaving your mouth. Out of the heart, out of the mouth flows the abundance of the heart, Jesus says. And it isn't a general gratefulness. It's a gratefulness that has a specific object and focus with gratefulness in your hearts to God. Our gratefulness is to him. Yes, we are thankful that he saved us. Yes, we are thankful he forgave us, that he's adopted us, that he's, all those things are great. But why are all those things that we are thankful for great? Because at the end, you get God. Our gratefulness is for him because he's given himself to us. That is why he is the object and focus. Brothers and sisters, you weren't simply saved from sin. You were saved unto worship. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ did pay the price for your sin, but it also made you a worshiper, made you part of God's choir. It is because Christ dwells in you by faith that his word can dwell in you richly, and you can express that through teaching admonishment, and singing. So let me say it this way. Where there is poverty of scripture, there will always be perversion of song. Where there is poverty of scripture, there will always be perversion of song. If truth is what we preach, then why would it not be truth that we sing? That's the most unbelievable thing to me, that there are churches I know that they, the pulpit is sound, the preaching is robust, it is biblical, and then the music that is sung is garbage. You're preaching Christ and singing Hillsong. 
I don't understand. If we pre- if truth is what we preach and truth is what we sing. So let me put it this way. Here's a good principle to follow. If you wouldn't quote their pastor or allow them to preach in your pulpit, then why would you use their songs in your worship or listen to them in your car? Think about that. If you wouldn't quote their pastor, allow them to preach in your pulpit, then why would you use their songs in your worship or listen to them in your car? So we need to re-examine our playlists. We need to re-examine our hearts. And maybe we don't have issue with some of those songs because the word of Christ isn't dwelling in us richly. Because we're not being taught sound doctrine. Because we're not being confronted, admonished with, with, with the sinfulness of it. So I would encourage you, read joyfully from God's hymnal. Which is the Psalms. Let me close with this quote by the late J.I. Packer, who has made an enormous impact on my life. Quote, any theology that does not lead to song is at a fundamental level a flawed theology, end quote. Let me say that one more time. Any theology that does not lead to song is at a fundamental level a flawed theology, end quote. Church, let us, let, let us have the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. And because it dwells in us richly as a church, let us teach and admonish one another. And let it, part of that teaching and admonishing be through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let us make much of Christ in all that we do when we gather. And notice all of that that Paul said began with the word of Christ. Everything must be regulated by God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. In the powerful name of Christ. And Lord, as we reflect on how you call us to worship you corporately, we ask, Father, that you would remove any enjoyment we have from those things that are not in alignment with sound teaching. Those things that we would never allow to be proclaimed from the pulpit, may they never be sung. Let us understand, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word, that music is powerful. They shape, it shapes us. Words create worlds. And so to listen to such man-centered lies is pulling us away from glorifying you and enjoying you for who you are independent of us. We know, Lord, that we will only worship you for you as your word dwells in us all the more richly. Because as it does so, you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to feel your radiance. So, Father, I pray for our church now that we would be a church that is marked by teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratefulness in our hearts to you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.